today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. people that are getting slaughtered, heads that are being cut off, all kinds of just grossness. I think that's just a small little glimpse of what it's going to be like in the tribulation for all those who will not take the mark of the beast. We think that it's bad over in the Middle East, but when it becomes, in essence, worldwide, take the mark of the beast or off with your head. Worse than that, if you don't take the mark of the beast, it's going to be off with your wife's head or your children's head your husbands, those kinds of things that are going to go on. These guys, that's where they come from. And they're singing, and they're worshiping, and they're praising the Lord in the midst of that. There are horrible atrocities that take place in other countries, and they're often aimed at Christians. Pastor David is reminding us that those terrible things that happen are nothing compared to what's coming. The death and destruction will be worldwide, and it's going to be out of control. Those who think it's a scary world right now will be blown away by what's to come. Thankfully, though, the Lord is patient. He's waiting for all that will come to know Him to make their choice. Choose Him today. Well, let's join Pastor David in the book of Revelation, chapter 15, with today's edition of The Open Word. We are in the book of Revelation. We are in uh, chapter 15. As I've shared with the previous studies in the book of Revelation, not everything in Revelation is chronological. You understand that. Hopefully you know that. There are times that there's overviews. Sometimes there's just things that are stated there and timing of it isn't always right. And the problem is, is sometimes that gets people into trouble. It gets them confused. Their interpretation of it is wrong and so their application of it is wrong. So as we go through the book, I'm going to try and show you those things and try to lay out in some form or fashion that linear order uh, to be able to help us to be able to to see that the statements that are made, that the visions that are shown here, when they actually take place, and sometimes they are in a different time frame. Sometimes they're different than what it looks at, at just like if you're reading through, if you don't really pay attention, you might miss, oh, is that happening right now? Or is he, in essence, giving a vision of something that's yet to happen? It's the hard thing about looking and studying prophecy. Many times we try to nail it down so tight and so close, and yet many times we don't really have that luxury. We have to pretty much relax and say, well, Lord, I see that. I don't know when that's going to happen, but I trust you that it will. You know, the absolutely amazing thing, as I've been going through Revelation and reading a lot of different guys and a lot of different commentaries, a lot of different studies on Revelation, it blows me away how different 
people interpret different sections and areas of Revelation, and a whole lot of it depends upon uh, either their denominational background, but the greatest portion of it depends upon when they wrote that commentary. Now, there's some great, great preachers and commentators from like the 19th century, writing in 1800s, or even writing in the 20th century, the early 1900s. Some guys that are deep in the Word of God. But you know what? For them, as they're reading this, Israel wasn't a nation. There was no hope of Israel ever being a nation. And so they're trying to figure it out with what they see, with what they understand, and so they're trying to form all these things together. And then lo and behold, God does the supernatural thing of taking a nation that was completely you know, spread out all over the world, bringing them all back together. It's never, ever happened in the history of mankind that a nation that had been torn apart and divided for 2,000 years, was brought back again as a nation at the place where God had almost 3,000 years ago, uh, let's see, two, uh, almost 4,000 years ago, Abraham had given them the place to be. Where else do we see that? We just don't see that. And so all of these godly men Man, deep and sensitive to the word, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and trying to figure out what the prophecy means. They're writing these things out, and then we look today and says, Oh man, you like miss that totally, totally. Because we can see right now events happening in the Middle East that fall right into so much of what the Word of God says, either from Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah or, or here in the book of Revelation. So we looked at chapter 14. And as we looked at it, I shared with you that in chapter 14, John was kind of giving this overview of differing things as we went through that. And we're not going to cover that tonight, but just case in point, verse 8 of chapter 14, John writes, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Well, you would think, okay, as you're reading this, wow, okay, Babylon's done, it's toast, it's over with. But yet you'd be wrong, because actually we read more about Babylon in chapter 16 and 17, and a lot about the city in chapter 18. So it was an overview in 14. So it's best to think of 14 as what it is. It was an overview. What was going to take place? So now we're coming to chapter 15, and chapter 15 seems to be, as you put 15 and 16 together, 15 seems to be kind of a prelude to move into or an introduction to chapter 16. Now, to me, it would have seemed to be better to put 15 and 16, both of them together as one chapter, but they didn't ask my permission, and so that, that's the way that it is. And you know that the division of chapters and verses, that's not inspired. I mean, some godly men tried to put it in a way that makes sense, but primarily the chapters and verses are there simply. So if I say, hey, go to chapter 15, verse 1, we're all on the same page. And I don't have to say, hey, go to where it says, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels. And you're going all through Revelation trying to figure it out. Chapters and verses are there, not inspired, but to help us. So here we are, we're at chapter 15, verse 1, and John writes, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels have in the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. 
And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on that sea of glass, having harps of God. So he says, and then I saw. And again, you've got to figure out that question in the sequence of events. How does that work out? Are we proceeding chronologically here through a time frame, or is it simply in the sequence that God had revealed this to John? So in other words, God says, here, John, look at this. Hey, now look at this. Now look at this. Were they chronological as far as the time frame, or was it just in how it was revealed to him? Well, not to confuse you, but again, if 14 was given as an overview, and John received that overview vision, and then we come to here, then I saw. I think that the events that are taking place in 15 have happened after this, and they're actually in the ongoing process of these trumpets that have been sounding. And now we're coming to not only the seventh trumpet, but we're going to come to the bowls. Once again, the vision that he sees here is now a heavenly vision. He's seeing in the heavenlies, whereas back in chapter 13, John was speaking about what he saw on the earth. Chapter 14 is an expression of what he saw from a heavenly vantage, and 15 the same way. In 15, as he remains here in this heavenly vantage point, here he declares that he sees another sign in heaven. And this one he says, it's great and marvelous. I don't think that what he was saying, wow, this is great, this is a a wonderful sign. No, I think what he was saying is, wow, this is such a huge huge sign that I'm seeing. When he says it great and marvelous, it's not that he's pleased with it as much as it's just such an overwhelming thing that he's about to see that God is showing him. He says, I saw seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is, what does your version say? The wrath of God is complete or finished. Wow. So John is about to be able to see the finality of the pouring out of God's wrath on the earth. That's pretty awesome to see. It's got to be overwhelming almost to see. It's got to be, for John, almost even heartbreaking to see because of what we're going to be reading in these next couple of chapters. I believe that these seven angels that have these seven plagues They're in addition to any of the ones that we've seen before. This is their job. This is their, in essence, ministry. They're set about doing their master's work, and they've got these bowls here that they're going to be pouring out on the earth. Again, these angels have these seven last plagues. They're going to be what they call the seven bowl judgments, okay? And that's the ones that are going to be poured out in chapter 16. And as we look at these bowl judgments... We're going to find that there's a lot of similarities between these and, as we've been going through Revelation, the seven seal judgments as the seals were opened and different events happened on the earth. And then from the seals, we went to the seven trumpets. And as different trumpet blasts were happening, different events were happening on the earth. And now we're getting to these seven bowls. Now, you need to realize that they're not just a restatement of something that's already taken place. 
there does seem to be some kind of chronological sense to go from the seven seals, then to the seven trumpets, and then to the seven bowls. And I believe that they process along that line. There's similarities to them, but they're not the same. John is very clear that these seven bowls of wrath, they are where the wrath of God now is complete. So this is kind of like, he's going to say, this is where the end of all of this is going. So he now goes on to describe the surrounding area. He says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. What would that look like to you? You could almost think of like a pristine ice skating ring, you know, almost clear in its vision, but then with almost like red fire under it. Maybe that's what it was. What was it that he saw there? Well, we see this sea of glass actually earlier on in Revelation. We see that it's compared, that it's around the throne of God, around the throne of God Almighty. We read how John first saw it back in chapter 4, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 4. John says, when he was immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, the throne or a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And then he goes on in that same chapter, and he even speaks of this sea of glass, and he also speaks of a fire. In verse 5, he says, there were seven lamps of fire which were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So again, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. But then he goes on, he says, and before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. I think it's probably, again, just another vision of something very similar. That throne room, that sea of glass, this is where all of these things are going to be coming out of. He goes on in here in chapter 15, in verse 2, he says that with that sea of glass, with the fire, he says, and those that have the victory over the beast over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on that sea of glass, having harps of God. These are the ones that hadn't taken the mark of the beast. They hadn't worshipped him. Therefore, they were martyred. That's what was going on during that time. If they didn't take the mark, they were martyred. They lost their lives. And so as their lives were taken, we also see these earlier on. We first caught a glimpse of them actually back in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, in verse 9 of chapter 7, he says that there was this great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then a little bit later, still in that seventh chapter, an angel explains to John who these are. In verse 14, the angel tells John, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So we know that these are martyred saints. He says they've washed their robes, they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So just as we see back in chapter 7, they're singing. So here in chapter 15, they continue to sing. But here, 
I love the song that they sing. They, they sing a special song. In verse 3, it tells us, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, let me stop right there. Alan and I, we, we discuss and talk all the time about worship and the singing and the congregation, and I'll just be real honest with you right now. I know that there's some Sundays or some Saturdays or some Wednesdays. You guys, man, you're just singing, and it just... It's awesome to hear the congregation sing. And then there's other times, it's kind of like, hello, is anybody there? Is anybody there? Anybody come today? And you wonder, I love it to hear a congregation singing. Guys, I don't know how the ladies are because I don't go to the women's retreat. But guys, I know when we go to the guys' retreat and you get 300 guys in that room and they're singing, ladies, The guys actually sing when they all get together. They might not sing when we're here, but they actually sing when we're all together. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. And when a congregation comes together in a song, granted, it's a familiar song, easy to sing, right in your key. The congregation is singing and going out. You know what? I know, according to God's word, that that pleases God. That pleases God. The word says that our God inhabits the praises of his people. And when his people gather together and praise and worship him, man, that brings joy to our Lord and to our Savior. Well, these, these are ones that face it. Their life was a whole lot worse than your life and mine up to this point. They've been martyred. We've heard and seen stuff going on in the Middle East, people that are getting slaughtered, heads that are being cut off, all kinds of just grossness. I think that's just a small little glimpse of what it's going to be like in the tribulation for all those who will not take the mark of the beast. We think that it's bad over in the Middle East, but when it becomes, in essence, worldwide, take the mark of the beast or off with your head. Worse than that, if you don't take the mark of the beast, it's going to be off with your wife's head or your children's head or your husband's, those kinds of things that are going to go on. These guys, that's where they come from. And they're singing and they're worshiping and they're praising the Lord in the midst of that. We find it hard to praise the Lord when we have a tough day, don't we? You know, it's kind of, oh, yeah, thank you, Lord. It's a really bad day, but, you know, thank you. Okay, we'll see how tomorrow works. Okay. He says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. I believe that they sang a powerful, powerful song, declaring, again, the testimony of their lives and the full purpose of God's eternal plan a plan that God brought together in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. They said it was the hope of Moses and it was the fulfillment of Christ. The Old Testament, the Scripture, the Lord God Almighty is what they called him. Bob Utley, a commentator, reminds us that this title, Lord God Almighty, it's an allusion to the three most used Old Testament titles for God. When they say Lord, it refers to Yahweh, Jehovah. With that understanding, that meaning that he is the Savior, the Redeemer, he's the covenant God. 
And then he says, Lord God. The word God comes from the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim, which is our understanding of who the creator was, who our provider was, who our sustainer of all the life on the earth. And then Lord God Almighty, Almighty, again in the Hebrew, El Shaddai. And that was the patriarchal name of God that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob spoke, Almighty, El Shaddai. So their song speaks of, again, that Old Testament promises of God. But it also speaks of the New Testament, that king of the saints. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is either directly referred to as king or through the use of some of his parables. He even speaks of himself along the line of the parable as the king. Jesus Christ, the king of glory, the king of the saints, all of those who have called upon him for salvation are the saints. You realize that, right? Don't you, church? You realize that you're sitting right next to a saint tonight. A saint is one who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are called saints. How many of you act like a saint all the time? Aren't you glad for redemption, grace, and mercy? Amen? Amen. Finally, we hear their songs speaking of that completed plan of God. They say, all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. The Apostle Paul refers to this end time scenario in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Very familiar verse probably to many of you. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, he says, therefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, has highly exalted Christ and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not happening yet, but it's going to. Some are going to be declaring that because we declare it because he is our Lord. He is our Savior. Others are going to be declaring it under duress. They're going to finally realize he is God. He is Lord. He is Savior, but he's not mine because during their life, they never made that commitment of their life to him. And you see the mercy and the patience and the long-suffering of God still lingers, still waits, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. John's vision continues on here in verse 5. He says, now after these things, I look now, and again, is this chronological or just the fact that he saw one thing and then he saw another? After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with these golden bands. Okay, I believe that this is in conjunction with the beginning of this chapter when he says, you know, and I saw this other sign in heaven, great and marvelous, these seven angels having the seven plagues, for in them was the wrath of God was complete. I think that all of this is kind of happening all at the same time. You've got the martyrs there on the sea of glass, and they're worshiping, and they're praising God, and at the same time, the temple is opened up, and out come these seven angels with these bowls of wrath. He talks about the fact of the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony 
And that's just another way of, of speaking or speaking about the heavenly temple. You realize that the tabernacle that was built during the wilderness experience, the temple that was built during Solomon's days, they were only replicas of the heavenly temple. And the word tells us that they were just, in essence, a poor example, a human example, a physical example of what spiritually God has before us. Pastor David Landry has been taking us verse by verse through the book of Revelation, and we know you'll want to come back for more. If you'd like to hear today's message again or listen back through other teachings, you can find them all at theopenword.com under the Teachings tab. We hope today's message has touched your heart, settled some questions you've had, and maybe even caused you to ask a dozen more. If you do have questions, we'd love to do all we can to answer them. Please give us a call at 520-836-9676. We'd love to pray for you, too, and learn more about your journey of faith. Once again, that number is 520-836-9676. We believe that God has given us the church so that we can learn more about Him and about living together in community. Are you a part of a local body of believers? If you're in the Casa Grande area, Pastor David has a special invitation for you. Thanks for listening to The Open Word. If you're in the Casa Grande area and looking for a church home, I'd love to meet you and shake your hand welcome you to our community of believers here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. We meet weekly on Saturdays, Sundays, and Wednesdays for a time of worship, fellowship, and studying the Bible. You'll be able to find out more about us and get directions by visiting theopenword.com. And under the links at the bottom of the page, click on Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. I look forward to meeting you. Thanks, Pastor David. That's all we have time for today. But join us to learn more from the pages of Revelation right here on The Open Word.